Welcome to the Seashore Church Message of the Week. This message is designed to bring more of heaven into your world today. For more resources like this, or to learn more about our church, visit seashorechurch.com. So I want to read to you tonight from Isaiah chapter 6. I'm actually going back to the text that I used a few weeks ago, and that Emily used last week, not knowing that I had already sort of gotten a download from God about something from this very scripture. And when she threw it up there in the translation that I had written down, there's a side of me that's like, oh yes, God's speaking this to her too. And then I was like, oh no, don't preach my message because I don't have anything else for the following week. But I was excited to hear um, what God had given us through Emily last week. If you hadn't heard it, I encourage you to get the podcast and listen to it. She talked about the atmosphere of heaven. Here's what I love, because this is kind of a, a vision that Isaiah got, Isaiah the prophet. God allowed him to see something, to sort of peek behind the curtain into the spiritual realm at the very throne room of God. And in this throne room of God, he saw some things that I'm going to read to you in a moment. But I want you to realize that what Isaiah only saw in a vision, we now have full and complete access to through the blood of Jesus. So when we talk about a worshipful atmosphere and environment, do you realize that that's not an environment that we need to create? We don't have to create atmosphere. We can bring the atmosphere and culture of heaven here now. What a great encouragement that is. I don't have to make something up. I don't have to create buzz. I just got to make sure I'm doing what I need to do to bring heaven to earth. So this picture of the throne room of God is no longer just a vision. It's not an obscure theological concept. It is the reality for us every time we enter into worship and we pray. We bring the atmosphere of heaven here. And I think that's pretty cool. So I want to read to you a little bit of what this atmosphere looks like, like we did last week. So in Isaiah, turn my gain down a little bit. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, we read the same thing last week. So I know you've all got it memorized. Maybe not, so I'll read it again. In the year that King Uzziah died, I clearly saw the Lord. He was seating on his exalted throne, towering high above me. His long flowing robe of splendor spread throughout the template. That's what I talked about. Remember the, 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 the train of his robe filled the temple? Standing above him were the angels of flaming fire, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces in reverence. With two wings they covered their feet, and with two wings they flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Commander of angel armies, the whole earth is filled with his glory. The thunderous voice of the fiery angels caused the foundations of the thresholds to tremble as the cloud of glory filled the temple. This is a picture of the throne room of God. What an amazing picture to think that we have access. The Bible says we can approach the throne room of God with confidence knowing that He hears us, whether we are praying, whether we are worshiping, we have access to that environment. And when we have access to it, we can bring it to wherever we are. 
We can bring that atmosphere that when we declare holy, 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 he's the Lord God Almighty, it changes the atmosphere of everywhere that we go. But the Bible talks about these fiery ones or burning ones. They're called seraphim. And it's part of the heavenly host. You have cherubim, cherubim, angels. I don't want to necessarily get into angelology. Yes, that is a class, angelology. But to give you a picture of what these seraphim were, the Bible describes them as having two wings that cover their faces and the two wings that cover their feet and with two wings they fly. They're called the burning ones because if you can imagine that scene with wings and wings and wings, as they worship God, they kind of look like a flame flickering above the throne of God. And the burning also indicates, it kind of has a double meaning, not only their appearance, but also their love for God. They are burning in their love for God. That this expression of their hearts of holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This is not an expression that they are saying because that's what God told them they're supposed to say. I promise you, this was not them going through the motions of worship. It was what they were created to do. These beings, these seraphim, were created to worship. That's their design. That's their makeup. That's why they're made the way that they are. So for them not to express worship would go against their very nature and their identity. What magnificent creatures. I want to tell you, we are the burning ones. Because we were designed for the same thing. We may not be seraphim, but you and me, we were created to worship. We were not created as objects of wrath that God would just, I needed somebody to kick around to blame for all the things that make me mad. That's not the way God created us. God created us as objects of love. And when he pours his love into our hearts, the only natural reasonable expression from us would be worship for him we were the burning ones we were created to burn in our hearts with love for the father who poured out his love for us and when we live a life that is contrary to our design nothing seems to fit we're the burning ones In Hebrew, the word seraphim is also a synonym for serpent. Possibly because of the, the way a flame kind of moves. I was going to do an I dream of genie thing. That's the best thing I could think of, but I'll save you the trouble. I guess I just did that, didn't I? But perhaps the way a flame moves is also resembling of a serpent. So that became a, a not a slang word, a synonym for seraphim would be Serpent, the burning ones. Have you ever lost your fire? Have you ever had maybe some moments in your life where you were burning for God? You just couldn't get enough. You're on fire. You tasted of His goodness. You experienced His mercy. And your heart was aflame for your Creator. 
When you read Psalm 139 and he says, I created you in your mother's womb. In their inmost being, I knit your parts together. When you were in the womb, it's the closest relationship you probably ever had with God because he's in your mother's womb with you, putting the pieces and the parts together. What a beautiful picture of intimacy with the Father. And your heart burns. So when you read this Psalm 139, all of your days were ordained for you before one of them came to be. And I loved you with an endless love. Did your heart burn for Him? God, when I experience your love like that, my heart's burning for you. But then stuff happens. And the burning, the bonfire in your heart begins to fade and begins to flicker. Sometimes it's a tragedy that can do it. There's a tragic circumstance you can experience in life that can shake you to your core and begin to cause you to question the very nature and character of God. God, if you're good, why did they have to die? If you're good, why the diagnosis? If you're good, why did you let these things happen? And instead of the exchange of our questions for His goodness, we let the questions fester and the flame begins to go out. Have you ever lost your fire? <laughs> I'm talking to you as someone who, this is the level of fire that I had. Are you ready for this? I remember my birthday. I was probably nine or ten years old. I don't know how old I was. I had a Jesus is Lord birthday cake. That's some fire. Rather than happy birthday, Clayton, I wanted all of my friends to know how good God was. So I had a birthday cake and I wrote on it, or I had the people write on it, Jesus is Lord. I was so excited. I don't remember how old I was. She's got a picture of it somewhere. As a kid, I just loved him. I loved him so much. I was raised in the house of God from the age of two when my parents gave their hearts to Jesus. I was raised in church. I got to tell you, as a kid, I never had a time when I came to church going, man, we got to do this again. I love the house of God. I have trophies still in my room to this day of winning sword drills. Anybody have sword drills as a kid? of who could flip to the Bible verse the fastest. What value this has in a kid's relationship with Jesus, I have no idea. But the teacher would call out a verse, and you'd flip to it, and whoever said, got it first, they got a point. And every week, I would flip to it, got it! And you better believe I was keeping track of how many points I had by the end of the year. And I got a trophy with a cross on it for winning the sword drills of the year, being the fastest Bible looker-upper. I'll admit, there may have been a few times when I said got it as I was flipping pages, but I had it. I knew where it was in the Bible. I was getting there. And the point is, I won, and winning is everything in the kingdom of Clayton. It was quite funny because we had three of our guys that did a Spartan race 
Gary and Brent and Akeem, they all did a, 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 you know, the big obstacle courses, the Spartan races. And uh, I asked Keem over Facebook because they were like, oh, we finished. I was like, well, who won? Of the, of the three of you, who won? And Akeem goes, we all crossed the line together. And I'm like, how socialist is that? What do you mean you crossed the line together? And then I realized it at our last men's retreat. I did a whole session about how being competitive in the wrong things is unhealthy. We need to learn to be competitive in the right things. And I was being reminded of my message from three incredible men. Actually, the Spartan race is one where you could be competitive. And I would venture to say that one probably did cross the line before the others, but I'll have to find out who that was a little bit later. I've completely lost track of where I was in my message. See, that's what happens. Why am I saying, oh, the sword drills. I just, to be honest, I love the Word of God. I loved it. I love memorizing Bible verses. I remember memorizing Psalm 23 as a little kid. I love that psalm. He is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pressures. He restores my soul. I loved it. I just loved him. And then high school hits. And suddenly, there weren't a lot of other people around me who loved him like I did. And I suddenly realized that maybe there's a lot of things that I'm potentially missing out on. This whole partying thing. I mean... I can still do that and love God, right? I can still go out and sin so long as I say the Lord's Prayer at night. How stupid is that? That's what I thought. If I can say the Lord's Prayer before I go to bed, then I'm good. I don't know where I got that thought from, but I noticed my fire, my flame started to flicker. It started to fade. Have you ever lost your fire? I got good news for you. (laughs) You can get it back. I want to share another passage to you from Scripture that as I began reading this Isaiah chapter 6 verse, it brought to mind to me something that happened much earlier in Genesis chapter 3. Now, I'm not preaching this. Don't make a doctrine out of this. But sometimes there's things in your Bible that you can read and go, well, if this is true, then this could be a possibility as well. And I think it's actually good to consider some of those things without necessarily having to make a doctrine out of it. You follow me? I'm not going to preach heresy, I promise you. But check it just in case. But here's what I noticed. As I began thinking about times in my life when I kind of lost the fire a little bit. Do you know that story in Genesis chapter 3 when it talks about when Adam and Eve sinned and fell in the garden and then sin entered the world, they were kicked out of the garden and all of the curse came as a result of sin. Anybody know the story that I'm talking about? So I probably don't have time to read the whole thing. But here's what struck me. You remember when Eve was tempted by the serpent in the garden. Did you ever find it strange that Eve was having a conversation with the serpent like it was completely normal? Does that strike you as strange? If I were to see a snake on the ground and all of a sudden started talking to me, I think that would be a little bit unique. And we don't see any picture uh, or any biblical narrative in the book of Genesis of an animal speaking to humans. 
We hear of Balaam's donkey later on, but the Bible says that God opened the mouth of the donkey, and that was kind of an odd moment. But we don't see any other examples of animals being able to speak. And I think that would be a pretty important thing to record in Scripture if that was the case. But yet Eve doesn't seem to be startled by a serpent that's actually speaking to her in the garden when he says, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Does that strike you as a little bit unique? It did me. I read this story and I was like, well, I wonder why Eve was just carrying on this conversation with what seems to be an animal. And then I realized in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14, the Bible says, so the Lord God said, and this is after Eve had sinned, okay? God comes down and says, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, tempted Eve, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Do you know how snakes crawl on the ground? We do because we almost ran over a copperhead on Skyline Drive. That was a scary moment. But I was second. You know the rule of snakes on the trail? It's always the third guy that gets bit. The first guy wakes it up. The second one pisses it off. The third one gets bit. Luckily, there was no third, so I only made him mad. I'm going to get back to my message. Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. You know how snakes crawl on the ground. Do you understand that that was only after the curse? So if the curse involved them crawling on their belly, maybe they didn't crawl on their belly prior to the curse. And we know that in Hebrew, a synonym for serpent is seraph. What if what Eve saw in the garden wasn't what we know as a snake crawling on the ground? But what if what Eve saw in the garden in the serpent was a seraph that had lost his fire? What she saw was a beautiful creature, an amazing looking creature. But the creature lacked the fire of God. We know that Lucifer was in heaven. He was created to worship. The Bible called him an anointed cherub. So whether he was a cherub or a seraph, use whatever term you want. But the fact is he was created and designed as a beautiful instrument of worship. Designed to worship the Father. But because he desired the worship that God was getting, God threw him down to the earth because of his pride. God takes this beautiful one who was at one time aflame with love for God, on fire, who at one point was one of the burning ones, but had lost his fire, and he's thrown down to the earth. And the next thing we see is Eve having a conversation with what something that was once on fire, but has now lost his flame. Because he desired what was intended only for God. And so rather than get the flame back, he tries to steal Eve's. And he causes confusion in Eve's heart about the very identity that she carries. And where God would look at her and say, Eve, you're the greatest gift I could ever give to Adam outside of my own breath. 
I walk with you in the cool of the day, just like I do Adam. You're invited into the same loving relationship that I have with him. And I pour out my love on you because that's why you were created. And there's a moment there where Eve is on fire for God. But because she believed the lies of one who lost his fire, she suffers the same fate. Have you ever lost your fire? Because if you listen to people who had the fire of God but have lost their fire, you're listening to just a snake. And I don't say that to condemn somebody. I'm saying it because I don't want to be someone who's lost their fire. And there have been moments when I felt the fire begin to fade. And I've come into church. This may shock you. Those years when I wasn't walking with God, I was still going to church. And I'd sit in a pew just like you're doing. And I'd sing the songs. And I'd say the right words. And I'd pray the Lord's Prayer at night. But I knew that there was a fire that was dying. But it was still there. It might have been a smoldering wick. But there was still something there. There was still something for God to work with. And I'm telling you, you would not be sitting here tonight if there was not also something in you that's still lit. It hasn't gone out. Have you ever tried to put out a a campfire at a campsite or a bonfire and you, you think it's out? But then the moment you uncover something and put your hand on it, you feel it's still warm. And you may not have tended that fire all night long, but the moment you put tender back on fire, boom, you got a bonfire once again. Where in the world did that come from? I thought this thing was out. And yet still, all I have to do is put fresh wood on that fire and I've got a roaring fire once again. I believe tonight God wants us to see a roaring fire come in our hearts tonight. The funny thing about rekindling the old flame is that I can't supply the fire but I can supply the fuel that fire can't burn without fuel you know in the temple in Solomon's temple the priest never provided the fire God sent the fire but it's the priest that kept the fire going by continually offering sacrifices, by continually cutting the bull, putting it on the altar, by presenting God with the offerings and the sacrifices of the people, the fire kept burning. God provides the fire, the priest keeps it burning. Well, guess what? We are a kingdom of priests. You're the priest, not me. I'm a priest too. We keep the fire burning by continually offering sacrifices on that altar. And God's not asking you to sacrifice your pets. Though sometimes... I wish He would. (laughs) My wife is threatening to post pictures of me and our dogs. God's not asking for animal sacrifice. But he is asking for fuel. He's asking each and one of us to put on the altar whatever's going to burn. Do you know when they 
talked about devotion, the word devotion in the Old Testament, when they devoted themselves to the Lord, do you know what that means? It means the irrevocable sacrifice placed on the altar. Irrevocable. It means I can't take it back. But it's the great exchange. It's the exchange for the things that I've held on to for the fire of God. I can't make the fire, but I can keep it burning. And when I place myself on the altar, He will consume whatever I put on it with fire. Because fire always falls on sacrifice. And I'm right back to the flaming love for the Father that's been missing for so long. But to catch that fire, I'm telling you, you got to be in the room. you got to be in the room. When God's fire, when God's fire falls, you, you got to be there. I, I, I don't just mean talking about this room. I mean, sometimes it's creating a space for yourself. Maybe it's a quiet place. Maybe it's a, for me, it's the woods. For you, it, or, my, or my shed. For you, it could be the dock at your house. It could be the backyard. I don't, I don't care where it is, but there's got to be a place when you are able to just get with God and put that stuff on the altar. Can I give you an encouragement? Isaiah chapter 41, the same prophet later on, is speaking of the Messiah. Much of Isaiah is prophesying about the Messiah. And in chapter 41, here's what he says about the Messiah that's going to come. Because he's speaking to a people whose flame had started to go out. They were suffering from the oppression of their enemies. They were wondering whether all these things that were promised to them were actually going to come true, or have we completely blown it? Has anybody ever thought that? God, I read your promises, but I look at your promises in my life and I go, based upon what I've done, there is no way this is going to happen in my life. Or maybe things have happened to you and you think, well, these promises are great, but I'm pretty sure I'm disqualified. If you knew the abuse that I've suffered, there's no way I could ever be a good husband. If you knew the things that I've been through, I lack the tools to be the wife that I see I'm supposed to be when I read Proverbs 31. Boy, Proverbs 31 puts pressures on wives sometimes. How am I going to be that? You get the fire back. And here's what he says about the Messiah. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. That's God's promise to you. You can feel like the smoldering wick. You can feel like the in the morning campfire that you haven't put any wood on all night long and it's smoldering and you're like man I gotta start from scratch all over again but if you just uncover the coals and put even a a big log on it within a minute that thing is right back on to a raging inferno once again he will not snuff you out that's not how he works there's no shortage of fire there's only a shortage of fuel (laughs) You keep putting stuff on the altar. I know I'm preaching this a lot, but this is revival. The way I get revival happening in my life is to keep putting wood on the fire. It's to keep giving God. You know why? You know what I mean by wood? The wood is the stuff that just collects around our lives. It's the things that maybe replace the intimacy with God with the distraction of my phone. For me, the wood means when I should be praying... Instead, I'm scrolling through news feeds. That's my wood. 
I'm not a big social media person. I'm not very good at it, to be honest with you. But I scroll through news feeds like crazy. And I'm like, why am I doing this? I've somehow convinced myself, got to keep up with what's happening in the world. I'm like, no, it's just a distraction that's keeping me from my prayer time. That's my wood. So I need to put that wood on the altar. Sometimes, for, I'm not going to tell you what your wood, I, I don't know what it is, but the point is, there's no shortage of fuel because there's no shortage of things that will seek to take me away from the intimate relationship that I'm intended to have with the Father. And anything that does just becomes wood. And there is no shortage of it, so I just keep putting it on the fire. I keep putting it on the fire. And when I do, that fire burns. I'm telling you, we are the burning ones. But when the fire starts to go out, our hearts begin to become indifferent. Eh, message was okay this week. He cried, he got emotional, so it was a little better than last week. He yelled a little bit this week, so I didn't really like that part. Yeah, the song... Yeah, it wasn't my favorite song. It just becomes indifferent. But if you don't deal with the indifference and realize the issue was not the song they sang, the issue wasn't the message he preached, but the issue was that my fire was going out. That's wood. That's fuel. It belongs on the altar, not on your back. But the indifferent heart begins to grow cold. And if you don't deal with the cold heart, the cold heart becomes hard. One of the hardest things I've had to deal with as a pastor, as a friend, as a disciple, is helping people deal with a hard heart. But God's here to light a fire once again. I'll end with this story. In the book of Luke, chapter 24, I'm not going to read the whole thing to you because we don't have time. But it's a story that Luke tells of when Jesus had risen from the dead but hasn't yet appeared to a lot of people. And there's a couple of disciples that were walking from on this road to a town called Emmaus. And they're walking along the road, and I gotta tell you, they've probably felt a lot more like smoldering wicks than they do on fire. Man, when Jesus was here, he was performing miracles, they were drawing crowds, the money was coming in, the kingdom of God was coming, Rome was getting nervous, they were on fire. You the man, Jesus. We're on the Jesus team. We got the Jesus t-shirt. This is awesome. He said something about dying, but I don't know if I heard that right. I'm, all I know is I want to see you feed 5,000 people again. That was awesome. I want to see the lame walk. This is great. Jesus, this ministry is off the chain. This is so good. And then he dies. Well, wait a minute. Did I? Did I? Did I miss something? I didn't know death was a part of this. I mean, yeah, he talked about it, but weren't those metaphors? But he actually died. And so they're walking along the road, and they're just kind of confused, not sure what's going on. 
And so they began talking to themselves, and here's what Jesus does. This is what Jesus does for the hard heart. It's what he does for the cold heart. It's what he does for the indifferent heart and what he does for the smoldering wick. Jesus comes and walks alongside them. But he hides himself. They don't know it's him. He's walking with them. And he's like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, well, where have you been the last couple of weeks? Do you know about this old Jesus guy? He's like, no, tell me about him. I'd like to hear more about him. Don't you love Jesus? I don't know how he contained himself in this moment. But they're walking along. And he's telling them, they're telling them all these things that they had hoped would happen. They're revealing a heart that's beginning to grow cold. They're revealing a flame that's beginning to flicker. But then Jesus says to them in verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on. They still didn't know it's him. Jesus continued on as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it's only evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. I want to tell you, they walked down that road with a smoldering wick. They sat in that room as burning ones on fire for their love for God. They did not leave the same because a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. A bruised reed he will not break. And you may feel bruised, bruised. you may feel smoldering, I can't get those words straight, you may feel bruised or smoldering, but he will set you on fire once again. And there's moments in your life when Jesus will walk with you and you'll feel alone, you'll feel abandoned, you'll feel like you blew it, you'll feel inadequate, you'll feel disqualified, but if you'd open your eyes, you'd see that he's walking with you in that very place. And you can find your flame again. I remember, though my high school years, I wish there were some things that I hadn't done. In fact, because of some of them, I ended up in a military school for a year. Not by choice. But I had a second chance. And I remember in this military school, I'm beginning to question, what have I done? Have I just blown it? But I knew there was this part of me that really loved Jesus. But I was afraid to spend any time with him because I felt like if I get in the presence of God, it's just going to remind me of all the things that I've done that have blown it. It's that little subtle lie of the enemy, the same thing that he whispered to Eve in the garden. And then I walked downstairs to the room of a teammate of mine. His name was GJ. He was our point guard. And I walked in and it's a military school, so they're like big glass panes in the doors. There's no privacy whatsoever. And I looked, and he's like under his desk doing something. I opened the door, and I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Walked around the corner, and I realized that here this guy was, one of the top point guards in the nation, who was competitive and fierce on the court. He's on his knees, and he's praying. Like, what are you doing? He's I'm praying. Go shut the door and get out. 
okay. And I walked out. I felt the flame begin to flicker again. I thought if that guy can be as on fire for God in this place, I can too. And I felt that old familiar feeling. Wait a minute. I know that feeling. I remember. That's the presence of God. And I just stepped into an environment where somebody had brought the app, brought somebody had brought the atmosphere of heaven into their dingy, disgusting, yet super clean, because you're in the military, military school room. And I walked into the presence of God. And I wanted back in. I wanted to kick the door down and go, uh-uh, I want some of what you've got. And it was because of that encounter that began a new flame rising up in me. That much of that has led me to where I am today. And I realized, I'm the burning one. I'm created for worship, and I'm created for fire. I'm not created to smolder my way through life. I'm not designed to just get by. I'm not designed to be one person on Friday night and then somebody else on Sunday morning. I'm not designed to sit in a pew and hear messages and walk out unchanged. I'm here to shake a nation. I'm here to bring heaven to earth. I'm here to commune with the Father, to walk in the cool of my day, to be in a dungeon with Him, to go to a foreign land with Him, to go to Bangladesh for Him, to go to Can. I don't care where it is, but I'm a flaming one. I'm a burning one, and so are you. Come on, pray with me tonight. Lord, we thank you. We thank you. Your word says that you have not abandoned your anointed one to the grave. You have not left his body to decay. And you've not left us either. And Lord, I pray tonight, send your fire. Send your fire tonight. We'll supply the wood if you'll bring the fire. Anoint every hungry heart that's in this room tonight, Lord Jesus. Set us on fire again for you. We love you so much. Rekindle the flame once again. We don't want to wallow in self-doubt, believing the lies of the enemy and thus empowering the liar that's behind them. We snuff out the lies and we fan into flame the gift of God for us. Send your fire, Holy Spirit. Send your fire on your sons and your daughters. Send your fire. Send your fire. Let it fall on the kindling that we provide. That we would never be the same again. Thank you for joining us today. For more resources like this or to find information about our weekly services, visit seashorechurch.com.